Pia Infante, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. When we were talking about having this conversation together, um, you told me that you had some questions you'd like to talk with me about. So I'm curious what your questions are. I do. I have lots of questions. Um, I just, I do want to start with just gratitude and, and thanking you for being with me today. Uh, you are most welcome. As you know, I've been doing a series of conversations with people involved with the Whitman Institute, mm -hmm. where uh, you work um, with John Esterley. And for our listeners, the Whitman Institute is a uh, foundation in San Francisco that works with dialogue and uh, uh, thinking about uh, things with a, a rare focus for a foundation on process. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been a, a very rich experience talking with, it's turned out to be about a, a seven or eight people who are involved with the Whitman Institute mm. in one way or another. And uh, so it was out of that that you said, you know, I'd really love to do one of these conversations and I have some questions for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you are a, a, a life coach, you are an organizational consultant, you've had a rich set of experiences in your 36 years on this planet. Uh, you were born in the Philippines, I understand. Mm -hmm. um, you went to the new school in New York. I did. Uh, uh, you went to UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you've you come to this conversation with a, a rich set of experiences, and I'm I'm curious about where you'd like to start. Hmm. Well, maybe this will. Uh, thank you for saying a little bit about my biography, because I think sometimes, like a lot of people in my generation, Generation X, so that we have been non-traditional in so many ways. I have been a teacher. I have been, uh, you know, a media activist. I've been an organizational coach. And I've worked in philanthropy for the past five years with John. And, and there's something of an adventure, adventurer nature in who I am. And it's never, it's not exactly come up as um, a dilemma, but something like a question where I'm curious now about my choices to, instead of sort of stay on a path, you know, just like a single path, like I'll, like in my parents' generation, you know, I'll be a teacher and then I'll teach for 30 or 40 years or, or maybe transition into administration or something like that in the same vocation. You know, if there's some, some loss there for me. And I've always been very confident. Like in my 20s, I, I, I hated anyone, I hated for anyone to give me advice. And then I have hit my mid-30s and um, I brought this quote from Wendell Berry because I think it's very appropriate. When we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. Would you say that one more time? Sure, sure. When we no longer know what to do, 
we have come to our real work, and when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. That's so beautiful. That's Wendell Berry. Yes. How lovely. So you have a sense that you've come to that place in your, in your own journey. Yeah. I'm a bit baffled. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a bit baffled by my immense sense of wanting to contribute and, and in, intu- just an intuitive knowing that there is so much that the world is thirsty for. And then, you know, and not out of a place of wanting approval or, um, or anything, but just, just a sense that I have something to give. And I, I believe that it's big. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm baffled about how to go about it. Like, do I, do I stay with sort of doing many, many different kinds of things, sort of like a potpourri or like a, a, a pot of different, a smorgasbord sort of of offerings in which I give a little bit in this way and I give a little bit to some people in this way. And, I, and one of my curiosities about you, Michael, is that, you know, you have been associated with Commonweal and sort of in a, a particular place, I think, not just geographically, but sort of psychically, or you know, in in the in the world, sort of inhabiting this beautiful place of sort of thought leadership and um, and healing. And so, one of the questions that I have for for you, sort of as I am exploring this mystery of wh- what is it that I'm here to do, really, you know. Um, and not to, you know, get accolades or money, but what really, you know, I, I know that I have a lot of gifts or maybe a single gift that I could craft or hone or something like that. So um, when I thought about who I'd want to talk to, you, you certainly came up because I've enjoyed every time that we connect and I, the quality of your listening and your presence is lovely. Well, you mentioned before we start started that you had had conversations with Juanita Brown, mm-hmm. who was the co-creator of the, the World okay. Cafe, mm-hmm. which is such an extraordinary methodology that the Whitman Institute has supported. Uh, mm-hmm. As you know, uh, uh, people, for those listeners who don't know, the World Cafe is a methodology that's gone all over the world. And uh, the basic methodology is that uh, any number of people gather at tables of four or five people at a mm-hmm. table uh, with uh, white paper on the table and pens and pencils that people can write with and some flowers on the table. This can be done with four or five people or it can be done with hundreds of people, and but lots of uh, however many tables you need. We did one at the Whitman Institute. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, the uh, facilitator poses a series of questions, mm-hmm. usually two questions for any given uh, uh, session. And what happens is that the, f- say, four people at each table discuss the question, and then in the next round, three of those people get up and move to another table with new people, and one person stays as the sort of anchor who's mm-hmm. holding the memory of the first session. Mm-hmm. And then another two questions are posed. And so you do, say, three rounds of this. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing in that process is uh, listening for the collective wisdom of the group, mm-hmm. that, there, that there's a discovery process 
in which the presumption is that there is a collective wisdom and the, the set of questions are designed, depending on the, the context, mm -hmm. to evoke that collective wisdom. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you talked to Juanita Brown, who was also uh, uh, a close uh, colleague of Cesar Chavez uh, during the mm -hmm. great boycotts. Uh, and you mentioned that you had the opportunity to talk to Parker Palmer, the great Quaker activist mm -hmm. who uh, we both love and who has done so much to move uh, uh, education and other fields forwards in terms of uh, discovering our souls and the tension between our souls and our roles mm -hmm. in life. Um, so maybe a starting point for our conversation would be to ask you um, what you learned in your conversation with Parker Palmer. Where did that go? What did you discover? Um, Parker makes me laugh. He's a really sweet man, and he... He so appreciated my inquiry. Was I felt very seen and heard, and, and not at all... Um, I didn't, I didn't know how it would feel. I think that what he, what he shared is very similar to what he, he might write, which is, um, you know, to cultivate practices of listening for what our life is trying to, where our lives might be trying to go. So not so much telling my life, this is what I want to do with you, but more listening for what my life is saying. And he, he encouraged me to write, to be writing, um, and to write and to be and to speak in such a way that doesn't suck all the air out of the room, I think is one of the things he said. Um, that doesn't suck all, suck the, all the air out of the room. Uh -huh. <laughs> like to, to write, to be, in a yeah, way. Yeah, to write, to be, and speak in a way that doesn't suck the air out, suck of, the air out of the room. That that's something that he's cultivated within. What a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. it is a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Which means, you know, inviting the presence of everything. Mm -hmm. His most recent mm -hmm. book, uh, Toward an Undivided Life, I believe is the title. Mm -hmm. it, it really is one of the most exquisite statements of how we can do our inner work. Mm -hmm. I have learned so much from Parker Palmer. For me, he is one of the best guides on the planet today mm -hmm. uh, toward uh, discovering an undivided life. And it's mm -hmm. very difficult to lead an undivided life. Uh, you know, the, in other words, the pressures of mm. making a living and uh, all those things mm -hmm. in relationship with who we really either know ourselves to be or would like to discover ourselves to be. Mm -hmm. Those are profound tensions. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and as Parker points out, his, his idea about how it works is that when we're born, we're almost pure soul. Mm -hmm. We're almost pure presence. Mm -hmm. And that's the the magic of babies and little children. Mm -hmm. And then as we get older, we discover, you know, in first grade and second grade, whatever, that 
who we really are isn't necessarily really very welcome in the world. And so we begin to defend ourselves and to develop this ego or this sense of, you know, who we need to present ourselves as being. Mm -hmm. um, and we can even forget who we really are. We can lose track completely of the mm -hmm. soul and get completely immersed in the role mm -hmm. uh, or the set of roles. And then, uh, and so what he says about reconnecting with the soul is he says that the soul is a very resilient but very shy like a uh, deer. critter or animal. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't plunge in and say, okay, soul, mm -hmm. you know, what have you got to tell me? Mm -hmm. What you really have to do is to, mm -hmm. to listen very carefully. And he has this wonderful mm -hmm. methodology of using third objects, usually poems, mm -hmm. which he presents to the group. And then people see what the poems evoke in them. Mm -hmm. And in the circle, uh, we each listen very carefully to each other and to ourselves. Mm -hmm the generous listening uh, process. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I love your... So what did Juanita Brown uh, and you say to each other? Juanita is described herself as a mighty mouse. As a... Mighty mouse. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ever since she was very small, very mighty. Right. Very active. Mm -hmm. Very, very active. And, you know, when you know David and Juanita together, you, you know, you get a sense of this dance that she... David co-founded the World yes, Cafe so David with David, and Juanita. is also her partner. And so I love the two of them because her... She's sort of a steamroller, if you know Juanita. You know, there's, there's a way that she's always just, just moving it forward. And then David is, um, you know, reflective and, and kind of goofy. And um, <laughs> they're great together. <laughs> and what I got from Juanita was, and this is, I got this from Parker too, I should say, is that Pia, the message I got, not just from their words, but from everything about the interaction was, Pia, where you are right now is, is absolutely, exquisitely perfect. You know? So when I went into my first conversation, which was with Juanita, I was so much more agitated than I am right now. I was... Like, okay, we have to find it. You have to have an answer. At the end of this conversation, let's point me in a direction and push me off so that I can start doing whatever it is I'm supposed to be freaking doing to help the world. You know, it was like I had so much um, sort of agitated impatience. And then after Juanita and Parker, I think what they both kept sort of reminding me gently was, you know, Parker said, Sophia, you're asking me, what I hear you asking me is how do I, how do I be in connection with my true self and express my soul as it is meant to express and he said you know I wore many many faces for many many years and around the time I was 50 I began to to have an experience that I was wearing my true face that I was being my true self that I was allowing my soul to really express so he said you know <laughs> so at 36 the fact that you're asking is great and you, um, it might just be you keep asking, you know, just keep asking whatever it is that you want to know. And they, they both really, and so, and Juanita and I had a lot of synergy around, so I said something to her like, well, how did you, you know, how did you end up becoming a consultant? She said, well, how did you end up becoming a consultant? And I said, I, uh, I said, I decided to stop working in the nonprofit sector 
for very little money and being really burnt out. And I just said, I just sort of turned around one day and I said, I'm a consultant. And I, here are the, way, here are the things I can do as a consultant. And we laughed and laughed because she said that's exactly what she did. She just, at some point, you know, labeled herself a consultant, sort of talked to people. I'm a consultant. These are the kinds of things that I do. And she went all around the world. Wow. <laughs> just having, and I, I think that we both realized that it, it wasn't a false claim that we had something to offer, you know. One of the things I really got with Juanita was that just trusting my own sense of intuition, you know. So I feel less agitated than I did during those conversations. And, and now, like even in this moment, as we sit here in this like incredibly tranquil, beautiful setting in Bolinas, I think, oh, maybe I can just enjoy these. You know, <laughs> like I can, mm -hmm. I can just enjoy asking you what I'm about to ask you and, and listening too, because, because I'm so receptive right now that the whole process can just be, I can let it wash over me the way that the drive washes over me, you know, all the green washes over me, or the water, or the sky when I'm in the air. So, so just to loop back to something you were talking about, Michael, which is just the tension of modern life. I mean, the, the tension of modern life. Um, and I would throw in there, there's the tension of our souls, these shy animals, they're like deer. They really only come out when it's quiet. And modern life being raucous and um, busy, but it also the world needing us to participate in it, you know, like we could all, I guess, maybe uh, run off and live in the woods, you know, until of course the, they started bulldozing <laughs> near, our, near our house or something like that. But I guess I'm wondering, you know, from where you are sitting, um, how do you, how are you with those tensions or how do you experience your own approach or experience your own beingness, you know, with all these tensions. Because from the outside I have a perception, you know, I have an observation, but I don't know what it's like on the inside. Um, I was once at a meditation retreat um, at a place in New Mexico called Vicitos, a very beautiful mountain meditation retreat, with a uh, insight meditation, meditation teacher named Joseph Goldstein, who's a very extraordinary man. And he said, and I've never forgotten it, that when he finally realized that it was not his job to save the world, he was immensely relieved. <laughs> and I, I really, it's been hard for me learn that lesson <laughs> uh, because um, because like so many of us um, I really do want to help save the world mm -hmm. uh, but I think the operative word there is help mm. um, the we live in such a profoundly tragic time mm. um, in which we are destroying the fabric of life on this beautiful planet. And the rate at which we are destroying it is ever accelerating. So the challenge is, how do you live in this period of time? 
And people have very different responses. One response is cynicism and despair. Mm -hmm. Another response is sort of a, an anxious, uh, I must strain every fiber mm. of my being to do everything I can because this is so horrible, horrible, mm -hmm. horrible, horrible. Mm -hmm. um, a third choice is, um, hey, the world is going to survive. Uh, I'm just going to take care of myself and my family and, mm -hmm. you know, do the best I can. And I'm busy enough or preoccupied enough with what's in front of me, so I'm just not going to listen to all those crazy environmentalists. A fourth choice is, you know, I believe that uh, the second coming is coming before 2050 mm. and uh, no need to worry about these things because the living God is on his way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there are dozens of choices, obviously, uh, hundreds, even thousands around the world. But somehow we each make up some way of being in, uh, in this uh, situation. Joanna Macy has, has been such a beautiful guide for many people with mm -hmm. her sense um, that the way to do it is to allow yourself to deeply understand and experience the grief that you feel and just allow the grief to fully express itself. And on the other side of mm -hmm. the grief, you may discover a way of being. Mm. Um, I've been reading, um, it's so fascinating when I tell people this, uh, most people are completely bemused, but I've been reading uh, a biography of a very extraordinary uh, Jewish thinker named Maimonides, uh, who was born in Cordoba, Spain in uh, I think around 1100, mm -hmm. uh, at a time when um, there was a remarkable Islamic empire based in Cordoba in Andalusian Spain. And at that period of time, there was a big clash going on between Christianity and Islam. There was just this huge clash of these two cultures. And the Jews were caught in the middle of it. And they, in, in the Christian world, they were despised as the killers of Christ who only survived to be uh, uh, witnesses of their degradation uh, uh, and of what happens to Christ killers. And in the Islamic world, uh, there were different perspectives on the Jews, depending on which brand of Islam uh, was uh, going on. Uh, in the more militant brands of Islam, both Christians and Jews had to decide between converting to Islam or being killed. But there were also very sophisticated uh, brands of Islam uh, where uh, Christians and Jews could participate. Obviously, they, you know, it was an Islamic uh, community, mm -hmm. but they could participate. And in uh, Cordoba, when Maimonides was born, it was one of the more um, relatively benign um, uh, Islamic regimes. Uh, and then some Islamic radicals came in and overthrew the moderate Islamic regime, and all the Jews had to leave. And some went into southern France, and a whole bunch went down into uh, Morocco 
and found their way along the coast of Africa. And Maimonides and his family uh, went from Fez and Morocco, where they were forced to convert to Islam, apparently for a period of time in order to survive. And then he went on to Israel, where he stayed for a little while. And then he and his family went to what was to become Cairo, where a very, very elegant, sophisticated Islamic uh, regime was in power that made full use of both the Christians and the Jews who were allowed to rise uh, in, a, uh, in a very sophisticated um, Islamic uh, uh, empire. Mm. And um, Maimonides, who turned out to be, many people say, the greatest Jewish thinker and philosopher in history. He, he took the whole body of uh, Jewish oral law, the Torah, the, the Talmud, and so forth, and something called the Mishnah, which is sort of comprehensive view of Jewish uh, law, and systematized it for the first time. And uh, he was also a great physician. He was the physician to the, uh, the king or whoever the head of this Islamic empire was. Um, and he uh, was also a great philosophical thinker. He studied astronomy. He studied, uh, deeply studied uh, Greek and Roman wisdom and so forth. And he, he reached this comprehensive perspective that was really just a very stunning vision of how to integrate religious and spiritual life on the one hand, science and philosophy on the other. But the most important fact about him was that this greatest Jewish thinker actually received most of his inspiration through Islam through Islam. And what came to him through Islam was Greek wisdom. Mm. And what he really sought to do was to reinterpret uh, uh, the Jewish experience uh, by making the Greek wisdom of Aristotle and Plato the highest expression of of God uh, and of human possibility, that the divine for him was really uh, Aristotelian wisdom. Hmm. Now, I tell that story because several things about it. The first part of it is you asked me how I do this. And what I do is I really do listen to what the universe is trying to tell me about what to do next. And it is constantly surprising to me. Mm. And it doesn't mean that I've um, sort of fluttered my whole life between different things. So that, you know, I've been at Commonweal since 1976. So Mm -hmm. it's been 34 years, as you say, in the same place, Mm -hmm. doing the same thing Mm -hmm. in this small town in Northern California. But at the same time, the way we created Commonweal, there was an infinite variety of things we could do within the context of Commonweal, Mm -hmm. of which the new school, which is the most recent development, uh, now I think five, six years old, is the most flexible instrument because it enables us to explore absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, um, uh, so 
this immersion in Maimonides came about because my wife Charlotte and I spent two weeks in Spain this summer and I found myself in, in uh, Cordoba and we were in the old city and wandering through the old city we came upon, very interesting actually, two things in very close proximity to each other. A little Sufi shop uh, uh, that uh, was sort of selling uh, uh, the experience of uh, a uh, Islamic uh, townhouse in the 1100s, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was sure that the people running it, that the spiritual energy in this little shop was just profound. Mm. And I knew it was a Sufi place just from mm. the music they were playing, but mm -hmm. also just the experience of it. And right near the Sufi shop was an ancient uh, Jewish synagogue, just the kind of ruins of an ancient Jewish synagogue, mm. and a statue of Maimonides. Mm. And I'd heard of Maimonides, I knew who he was, but <clears throat> Somehow, I began to sort of read a little bit about him. And I realized this was a period of time in which this greatest Jewish thinker um, received through Islam the wisdom of Greece and translated it both for mm -hmm. Jewish heritage. He became the most important Mm -hmm. interpreter of Jewish heritage, but it was through Maimonides to a large degree that this whole tradition was transferred back to the West mm -hmm. into Christian thought, into jurisprudence in Holland and, mm. and uh, England and so on. And the thing I love about that for this period of time is that here we are again, once again, mm -hmm. with the Christian West and Islam mm -hmm. at war with each other. Mm -hmm. And once again, you know, the Jews in the middle of this, mm. and really the Israelis in a very, very exposed, you know, situation, mm -hmm. um, in which, of course, I think they've made tremendous mistakes about how they, uh, mm -hmm. how they have uh, done this. But who am I to judge since I don't live in Israel? Mm -hmm. But from, from where I sit, um, I think they have... Uh, made great, great errors. Um, and, um, but here's this existential crisis, and one could well argue that this, what Samuel Huntington calls this clash of civilizations, um, is the existential dilemma that we face at the political level and to recognize that there was a period of time, there was in Cairo, no less, mm -hmm. an Islamic regime that made space for... Maimonides and... Maimonides and mm -hmm. Christians and mm -hmm. Jews. In fact, it was so integrated that mm -hmm. they said that you couldn't even tell when you walked on the street who was Christian, really? who was Jewish, who was Islamic. Wow. Because they didn't have to wear identifying signs right. as they did in other places. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems to me that one of the fundamental questions in the world today, by no means the only one, but at a level of spirit, one of the most fundamental, is how do the children of Abraham get back together again? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. How do the children of the book, the people of the book, the mm -hmm. Christians, the Jews, mm -hmm. the Muslims, 
how do we do it? Mm -hmm. How do we learn to, to live together again? Mm -hmm. um, other parts of the world, you know, other issues are going on, but this one is really central. So here I am, just listening to the universe tell me, you should look into this guy Maimonides, mm -hmm. right? And creating space in my life. So I have my work life, which I love, mm -hmm. Commonweal and the other pieces of it, and our work with cancer patients and, you know, with the environment and health and all the other pieces of the work that I'm involved with, the new school and so on. So that occupies my days. But in the evenings, from seven at night until seven in the morning or so, I am free. <laughs> and that's half of the day. Mm. And, um, and I just open myself to, mm. uh, to intuitive wisdom. I also do it during the day in my work, but, but the, the enriching mm. source often happens in the time that I'm not working, I'm meditating or simply, for me, to such a large degree, it's, it's uh, and it's so <laughs> archaic today in this world of social media and Twitter and, <laughs> you know, people with an attention span that's measured in nanoseconds. And for me, I'm this archaic creature that still reads books, you know, hundreds of books every year. And that is, um, that is for me the source of joy. Mm. So that's how I do it, in answer mm -hmm. to your question, is I really do listen. And I've, mm. you know, I have ideas about where I'm going or where we're going, but they're constantly subject to revision from what the universe guides me to do. So that's how I do it. Thank you. I really, really, I really appreciate that response. And intuition is something as simple as, there's a statue of this guy, maybe you should look, look him up, or something like that. It's not always like some deep, wise voice, right? It could just like feel like a nudge. I, um, It's funny because intuition was, I had a question for you about, and I think you did answer it about, you know, intuition in this age is really interesting. There seems to be you know, from the folks that I talk to as well, and, and myself, a sense that there's a going back, there's a remembering kind of sensation, as opposed to to figure this all out, all of the tensions that we've named in the modern in modern life. There's some kind of new answer or something like that. I keep having a sense that there's more like a remembering about how to be, a remembering, a remembering of a way and intuition is a, is a pretty powerful when I listen to mine I you know it sometimes takes me a few 
a few rounds, a few times that I get a nudge and then I, then I move. But when I do listen to it, it feels like deeply satisfying. Well, intuition, as you know, is, is one of the great roots to uh, wisdom. Uh, mm-hmm. I've uh, done a series of uh, sessions with an extraordinary man who runs something called Global Green Grants, named Chet Chizuski, um who became fascinated with the role of intuition and philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And so we've done a series of uh, sessions at different funder conferences on intuition and philanthropy, where Chet, who's an amazingly analytical guy who arrived at the importance of intuition by analysis, <laughs> and he looked at philanthropy and he said, you know, we have all these quantitative measures that people try to do. He said, but at a certain point, the quantitative measures don't really help you get to what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then he discovered this large literature um, in business, in the military, in uh, a whole set of psychology, a whole t- set of different disciplines that said intuition is fundamentally important to how mm-hmm. we figure out where we're going. So mm-hmm. he makes the rational case for the importance of intuition. And then he turns to me and I say to people, how many people in this room uh, uh, find that they use intuition in your professional life and philanthropy? So probably 70-80% of the people in the room raise their hands. And then I say, how many of you find intuition as important in your personal life? And again, a lot of people raise their hands. And then I say, how many of you have wondered what intuition really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does intuition actually work? Mm-hmm. And a smaller number of people raise their hands. And then I finally say, how many of you have considered whether intuition is a fundamental dimension of the structure of the universe? Mm-hmm. And very few people raise their hands. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fair question. In other words, there is an interpretation of intuition which is it is simply what Polanyi called tacit knowledge, that we know more than we think we know, and that there's a whole set of clues that we get from facial expressions and posture and a thousand different things um, that, that constitute intuition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very important aspect of intuition, is, is tacit knowledge. But what about the possibility, for example, in science, uh, you know, the people who have made fundamental discoveries in science and mathematics, it often drops into them in a dream or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that has nothing to do with recognizing facial expressions and body, Mm -hmm. you know, postures. Mm -hmm. It's coming from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Where is it coming from? And, And my own, I guess you could say, sense or hope, because I can't prove it at all, is that Intuition is actually a fundamental part of the structure of the universe. It's mm-hmm. what connects us uh, mm-hmm. to a greater whole of which we are a, a fundamental mm-hmm. part. Um, and that uh, in that sense, and, and this again was the Greek wisdom, you know, 
when Socrates, when Plato's Socrates spends time just standing out uh, outside uh, in silence, uh, listening, you know, he is he is listening to his daimon, to his source of intuitive knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, Barbara Sargent of the Calliopeia Foundation, who's thought a lot about these things, uh, talks about um, that the that the core of what unites um, people of the spirit in all the different traditions is remembrance. Mm-hmm. And you just talked about intuition as remembrance. remembrance. Mm-hmm. And I think it is remembrance. It is remembrance of who am I? Mm-hmm. Where do I come from? Mm-hmm. Where am I going? Mm-hmm. To whom am I accountable? Mm-hmm. You know, just the, the, the very most fundamental questions in life. Mm-hmm. And, and I share that sense, uh, I learned that from Barbara, that remembrance is very fundamental to uh, mm-hmm. the life of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know the phrase, the knower? There's a knower within. Mm-hmm. I think of... I mean, I like your framework about intuition being a, a part of the structure of the universe. That makes a lot of sense to me. That intuition isn't like an individual. It's not like an individual, and you know, that we could have individual interpretation, but it's not really an individual experience. Like, I was on the before I got back um, to to Oakland from Hawaii. I woke up that morning that I was getting on a plane, and I woke up in a kind of a sweat and I was I was saying over and over again oh god oh my god oh my god because I had just dreamt that I was standing on the plantation where I had been staying next to the next to the host and that a, a plane was come it was early morning it was very dark and the plane was coming almost directly towards us it was nosing down into the land and then it swerved and it hit the house next door to the house where I'd stayed for almost two weeks in my dream, and I woke up, you know, like, immense panic. And then, um, then and as I was, I was getting on the plane in Honolulu for the long flight back to Oakland, it occurred to me again that I had had this dream. <laughs> I said, hmm. So I had had, the, I had this dream. And then about, and then I fell asleep, and then about an hour into the flight, the pilot, sounding sounding pretty agitated, said, folks, um, uh, in, I, I, uh, fo- I have bad news. We're, uh, we're not going to be able to go on to Honolulu, I, I mean to Oakland, because well, it's, uh, we just have to make a precautionary stop, we're thinking, like, in the middle of the ocean. And he says, our, our hydraulic system is leaking, so we, we're not going to make it to Oakland. We have to turn around and go back to Honolulu. And, um, and when we got to Honolulu, and the whole time on this plane ride, I decided to just accept what was happening. Okay, I accept what's happening. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> There's a lot of fear in, in the space, in the plane, but accept what's happening. We got back to Honolulu and landed. There were fire trucks lining, you know, because when the hydraulic systems go out, the, the gear doesn't, you know, the, the <laughs> wheels don't come down if it's not working. 
But we landed, we were safe. And I thought about the dream again, and I thought, well, my intuition, the intuition was right on. It was a near, there was a near, you know, it was very close to me. So. And that's remarkable. It's remarkable that I had the dream, that I spoke it to my partner, that we sort of sat with it for the morning, like, hmm. I said, well, in the dream, we're not on the plane, you know? And it doesn't crash into us. It just, it comes, crashes next to us. So that's why we decided to go forward. Because I take my, I take those messages pretty seriously. And it was a very vivid dream. I mean, the lights, the, the fire, the crash, it was very vivid. And also it was the colors of, you know, on the big island of Hawaii, there's a lot of very dark lava, lava rock, it's black. And then when the lava's flowing, it's, of course, it's a bright red, like fire. So my dream was all lava colors. And, I, and then I, I had this sense that Pele, you know, herself was sort of saying, it's going to come close to you, Pia, very close. Pella being the goddess of uh, the, the volcano on the mm-hmm. Big Island. Mm-hmm. Right. And she's very present there, uh-huh. even when she's at rest, even when the lava is not flowing. She, this is her. Mm-hmm. She made this island. I mean, the island gets how many acres, hundreds and hundreds of acres a year, you know, gets added to it. And, you know, the, the other story that I, was with me when I, when I experienced this sort of near plane, whatever we want to call it, Smoke, this intuitive moment that our plane was in trouble. Um, I heard a story that lava, lava flows slowly, but it, it, it cannot be redirected. You know, so there was a fishing village. I had been there for many years, and the, and the lava, it was a tourist and fishing village, and the lava came towards it very slowly, but, you know, I mean, there's no village. Like, it, 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 it recreated the land, and that, that, story about Pele sort of saying, this is my island, you know, this is, this is my island, you can build all you want, and, but you cannot redirect me because this is my island. I, I don't know if I'm anthropomorphizing the universe or nature more, you know, more than needs, it needs to be, but I do think that um, whenever I f- f- sort of look at things like the, the Gulf oil spill, and I have this real sense of like, what the hell, you know, <laughs> like what? I cannot believe this is really happening, and uh, an inflated sense of sort of man's, humankind's ability to destroy, you know, like. Then I remember that there's also things like Pele saying, at any point in time, I can take back my island. This is mine, and so intuitively, I have a sense that I want to be a servant to. Not like the like not like nature's vengeance or something like that, but to a remembering or a a taking back from really harmful, destructive forces and elements and things. I mean, that's what I'd like to be a servant to. That's what I I sense in me. You know, one of the other conversations I've had for the new school comes to mind. A very extraordinary psychotherapist named Richard Grossman, mm-hmm. who, like uh, Rachel Naomi Remen at Commonweal, uh, our medical director for the Cancer Health Program, who also heads our work with physicians and health professionals, was trained in a tradition called psychosynthesis, uh, created by an Italian 
psychoanalyst named Roberto Assagioli. And um, psychosynthesis is a very beautiful transpersonal psychology that, that has meant a lot to me also. Um, and Dick Grossman wrote a book called The Tao of Emerson, in which he made the argument, and we talked about it in our conversation, that Emerson was actually a Taoist, and that this greatest American, uh, one of the greatest American thinkers, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, the Tao Te Ching wasn't translated for another 70 or 90 years until after he died, but, but Grossman puts, in his book, puts passages from Emerson and passages from the Tao Te Ching next to each other hmm. and really makes the case that, that Emerson's thought was basically Taoist. Mm -hmm. And um, Grossman is 88 years old now, still has a psychotherapy practice in Connecticut. And when I was in New York, drove down 80 miles to Manhattan to have lunch and talk. And, and uh, I was saying to him, Dick, in your psychotherapy practice, how do you really get to the heart of what the work is with somebody? And he says, with every new client I have in my, my, my work, the first question I ask them is this one. He said, do you now have or have you ever had a sense of mission, purpose, calling, destiny. Mm. And I think that's a wonderful question. Mm -hmm. um, and it really speaks to mm -hmm. what you are asking about today, because mm -hmm. as you said that you had, as you said, I think perhaps we went before we started mm -hmm. the conversation, but it was like, tell me I'm asking people that I trust, tell me what to do with my life. Absolutely. You know? mm -hmm. And of course the answers you're getting from people are, it's wonderful that you're asking <laughs> right. this question, you're just at the right, right. place, and so on. <laughs> but, but another slant on that question is, is Richard's question, which I would pose to you, which is, mm -hmm. do you now have, or have you ever had, mm -hmm. a sense of destiny, mission, purpose, calling? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's why I'm here, in this room. I have a sense of it. What is the sense? It is not rational at all. I don't know how to... It's um, much more of a sense than a description, but it is a... something that's sort of like almost like between being awake and being asleep I can have a sensation of it or in meditation or when it's all it's when I've been driving for a long time it's been very quiet or when there's no clamor in my head about how to look good or um get approval from certain parties or something like that. There is a... It is 
like a sense like create. Something like create. 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 Like create. And it doesn't have to necessarily be art or writing or it, I don't know the form isn't as important as it is something like translate some of what's in here to out there mm-hmm. and see what happens. Mm-hmm. There's a... Like I've thought at different times, maybe I should go back to grad school and get a PhD in X, Y, and Z. Or maybe I should go to carpentry school and learn how to build tables or whatever it is. And every time the universe or my intuition is like, don't pay for more school, you know? So at some point I said, well, I'd like to learn more, but I don't want to have to pay for it. So then I ran into John and John said, you know, I'd really like to have someone in the office with me. <laughs> and so then John, so the Institute has become, I'm glad I get to say this. I'm very grateful to John and the Institute. The Institute is sort of my own little graduate, exploratory graduate program. It is. Absolutely. Just I get to play in lots of different realms. Absolutely. It couldn't be a better graduate It couldn't program. be a better graduate program. Yeah. I couldn't have a better sort of space holder and mentor. And I'm very grateful so I have, I, have, I have this as a wit to cultivate the learning that I am thirsty for all the time. But this idea of a sense of calling or purpose, it, is, it is, has a, a sense or a tone and it feels like a combination of create and something like lead, something like lead. But it has never been, an, you know, something, it has, I've always shied away from like lead-like lead an institution or lead an organization. I've had different people over the years say, oh, you'd be great as the head of X or, you know, we love you as a consultant. We need a director. You know, there's like Uh lots of different times where I've sort of just, you know, just went a little to the left or the right of that particular be the head of, be the lead on. And I'm not sure why. I think part of my inquiry right now is, is that is that just fear that I'm you know is that fear of stepping into, or is it intuition that that's not the way that I'm supposed to manifest this calling? But it is. I mean, that question is very profound, and it is why I'm I have embarked on these this journey of these really wonderful conversations is because there's some part of me that understands that the listening that I do and then the listening where I am listened to, even if there's no quote-unquote landing place, you know, at the end of our conversation today, it is a, it is sort of moving in the right direction, or you know. Mm-hmm. So there's this wonderful mystical teacher named Gurdjieff who came out of Turkey, the Caspian Sea area, um, in the 1900s, came to Europe, um, and um, your question just makes me recall a line of his when he said that uh, that a a seeker in life should be able to make her living with the small finger of her left hand or the small finger of his left hand. And what I like about that is it offers a different model from the model 
that most of us assume is the best way to live, which is finding a career or a profession or a craft or whatever that both satisfies us spiritually and enables us to make a living. Mm -hmm. um, it's that assumption that that the richness of uh, the inner life and our career goals ought to be the same. Mm -hmm. And I think it's wonderful when people do find a way to make that possible. Mm -hmm. But I also think that I've met a great many people who have figured out a way to make a living uh, that works for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but they really find their inner lives in the part of their time that they're not working, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I just offer that as, as a thought because hmm. I think that, uh, for example, somebody emailed me today with the same kind of question. Mm -hmm. um, she wanted to find a graduate program uh, that would uh, would respond to her interest in soil biology and nutrition. Where could she find a graduate program mm -hmm. that both spoke to where food comes from, soil biology and nutrition? And I sent her a note back saying, you know, I don't know a graduate program that does that, but if you're thinking of going back to graduate school, I would encourage you to go back to graduate school to get a degree that will enable you to make a living. Mm. And then recognize that most real education in life does not take place in formal classrooms. Mm -mm. Um, so I think it's wonderful when people can combine the two, mm -hmm. but I really think that the practical question of how we make a living mm -hmm. is often uh, better considered uh, as something that will satisfy us, but may not really speak to the deepest parts of ourselves, and mm. that that's where Gurdjieff's advice, to be able to do that with your left hand mm. so that there's space in your life mm -hmm. for the truly free inquiry into who we truly are. Mm. That's fascinating, Michael, because it, it runs... It's a, an incredibly different frame than the one that, say, Parker Palmer was talking about on Bainbridge Island. So I'd like to say that one because I, I think holding them next to each other and then the possibility of many other ways of holding life, you know? But there's, the story is of, you know the Quaker John Woodson? Do you I'm recall? not sure I do. <clears throat> he was a, it was in the time, it was in, during slavery, it was like, Oh, yes, I do John know Woodson story. was Parker. the Quaker who said he had a leading. Right. He said to his community, I have a leading that this slavery thing is not for us. Yes. Right? But he, so quickly, his story is that he then proceeded to stay within the Quaker community and just constantly turning down any clothes or food or services that were slave, you know, services provided. But he would, so an example would be something like, he would have come over, he would be invited over to dinner of a slave-owning family, but he would refuse to eat the food because it was prepared by slaves who were not compensated. And then he would stay at the table, right? He would stay at the table and, and connect and converse, and they might ask him, why are you, you know, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you? And he would say, well, it bothers my mind and my heart. 
So it's not, um, you know, I'm not judging you. I have no rancor, you know. It's just I can't participate in it. He did this for 20 years up and down the colonies. And um, ultimately, and over and over again, he'd say the same thing. It bothers my mind and heart to participate in something, you know, that enslaves another person. So after about 20 years of this, the Quaker community collectively decided to end slavery about 80 years before the Civil War. And the Quakers turned out to be the critical group right. in ending slavery in the United States. Absolutely. And, and arguably, John Woodson was one of the, was the source, of, source that. of that and and didn't proselytize and try to judge and change people, just simply modeled over and over again a sort of gentle, loving rebuff. And know? as you know, Parker Palmer tells that story. Yes. And I think it is a beautiful, powerful teaching mm -hmm. story. And the reason I say it now, which is interesting, is because one of the things Parker said to me in our conversation was, so Pia, at the beginning of his 20 years, he didn't say, I'm setting out to end slavery. He didn't. You know, he, he had no idea he would be the linchpin in the Quaker community. And the Quaker community would then be the linchpin in American society, you know, to end slavery. He just listened to his own leading. You know, and the Quakers call it a leading. I got a, I had a leading. And I say it because the model then of his life was that he was, uh, his whole purpose was to, to be this. In, you know, to, to bring this message to the Quaker community, which is one of the, one of the, I think, prototypes, frameworks, or worldviews about life purpose and calling that I have within me. Something like the John Woodson story. Something like MLK, you know, um, that you are at sort of one with your message in your life is that. And then I think, you know, and then you've just, you've just offered this notion that it's not that you're leading a divided life, but that you're making a living, right, with your left finger or just in, in some way making it, giving yourself all the space to have a really depthful relationship with soul and self and universe and mystery. So I'm just holding that those two are slightly different, you know. They're slightly different, but... Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure that they're at all contradictory. Mm -hmm. John Wisdom's beautiful line. I love it. And I hadn't heard it before. I don't remember it from Parker Palmer, I'm mm -hmm. sure. But that he couldn't eat the slave-cooked food because it bothers my mind and heart. Mm -hmm. What a lovely line and how deeply that resonates. I think, I think that... John Wisdom might have said, I make my living as a shoemaker mm. or something, mm -hmm. and I can make my living that way because it doesn't bother my mind and heart to make my living that way. Mm -hmm. And making my living that way creates the space mm -hmm. for me to follow this mission which mm -hmm. I've been given, which is to travel all over the Quaker community mm -hmm. um, uh, saying to people that I've had this calling that slavery is not right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that it is enormously helpful if we can figure out a way of making a living that doesn't bother our minds <laughs> and hearts. Mm -hmm. But that's different from saying that 
in effect, John Wisdom should have been paid to go all over the Quaker community mm. uh, doing this. Which and I'm sure he, he wasn't. I'm yeah. sure he wasn't, yeah. too. So somehow he made a living. Uh, he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer, okay. Woodson, John Woodson. And somehow, mm -hmm. is it Wisdom? It's Woodson. Like oh, Woodson, wood forgive son. me. I think it's okay. Woodson. Uh, John Woodson. And so somehow he made a living in a way as a lawyer that apparently didn't bother his mind and heart. Right. Uh, so that he could do this other work. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure they're different. Mm. Mm -hmm. And again, some people do manage to, uh, you know, to combine uh, work and, and soul. Mm -hmm. Leslie Medine, who mm -hmm. is one of the, uh, uh, the Whitman Institute's uh, grantees, and we're going to be having a conversation with her about her extraordinary work. She's an example of somebody who really has Absolutely. found work. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one could really say that, that my work at Commonweal is absolutely soul work. But even though it's soul work, there needs to be space mm -hmm. for me that isn't just expressing soul through the work. Mm -hmm. I went at this uh, gathering of uh, grantmakers I was at this weekend, there were uh, Maya Lin was there, this great, mm -hmm. you know, she did the Vietnam Memorial and, and some other uh, artists. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about the question about whether as artists at this point in history, art had to be related to, you know, healing the world and addressing mm -hmm. the problems of the world, mm -hmm. or whether it could simply be art. Mm -hmm. And several of them said, you know, uh, I can't defend it, but uh, I've done a lot of activist art, but there's a part of me that just has to do this pure art. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm being called to. So mm -hmm. artists are, by their nature, people mm. whose whole being is wrapped up in this expressive process. Mm -hmm. And even if a part of them may engage in activist art, sometimes they're called mm -hmm. to art that is just an expression of soul. And yeah. they try to find a way to do both. Yeah. Oh, no, I appreciate that answer. I think what I'm, when I listen to myself, there is still that within me. Um, there's a construct still. I think there's still some leftover construct of what it's supposed to look like to have a calling and follow, follow it. You know, I think there's still a mental model in my mind. And now that, you know, with what you've just shared, um, I don't. I can. I think I can let go of some of my mental models and and continue to open, and just keep being open to what is here and present and coming. One of the things you said that really struck me in this conversation was, you know, given the modern world and its precariousness in many ways, um, people have cho people can choose cynicism, anxiety focus on only just making it with their own little group of people, religious fervorance, you know, lots of different monastic life, you know, hermitude. I think you were saying there's just thousands of choices of ways to sort of respond and be. And it struck me that there is a certain... When I think about why I decided not to stay completely enmeshed and mired in, say, it's like social justice nonprofit work, which is where I was in between uh, teaching. I was a teacher, you know, I taught high school and middle school. 
and then where I ended up later as a consultant in philanthropy. There were many years that I was in, you know, sort of a self-defined activist life and community. There is a there's a level of anxiety and um, constant striving, or sort of like a sense of the urgency of the problems, the urgency and the immensity of the problems are being responded to in some in some ways, um, or at least in my observation, with, with then urgency and anxiety, which strikes me as <clears throat> not sustainable and certainly not appealing to me. It was not a life I wanted to keep, keep living, you know, the that sense of anxiety about the urgency. Somehow I wanted an experience, or I created an experience for myself where I knew that I could be making my contributions to individuals and groups, but that it wouldn't be from a place of, you know, hectic, frantic activity. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. Not everybody can sustain for a whole lifetime, mm-hmm. a sense of urgent, frantic, anxious work on behalf of the earth. Mm-hmm. And some people do. Some people are. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. And um, for others, it absolutely isn't the right way. For many people, it's not the right way at all. Mm-hmm. You know? But I think. one can have a sense of the urgency of the question, but also recognize that perhaps even with the most urgent questions, that an anxious, frantic response is not necessarily the most skillful response. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm. and, and much of the activist world is enmeshed with that sense of anxiety and franticness. Mm-hmm. That's just true. Mm-hmm. And that, and the energy of it does. There is a lot of doing, and I would say, some succeeding, in some of the targets and goals. But I, you know, I, I, what came up for me just now is you were saying that someone that you quoted said that when I realized it was not my job to save the world, <laughs> I was immediately relieved. Um. Or help save the world. Did he say help save the world? No, what he said was, when I realized it was not my responsibility to save the world, I was immensely relieved. Mm -hmm. I just, I think that's a beautiful, Mm -hmm. a beautiful understanding. We can all contribute. Right. We can contribute all our lives. And one way of contributing is to recognize, at least if you're going to deal with human beings, we can make a difference in somebody's life, mm-hmm. right? And maybe we can make a difference in a number of people's lives, mm-hmm. or, you know. Like, I've done the Cancer Help Program for uh, 26 years now, mm-hmm. and I've done about 170 week long retreats. Mm. So, uh, if you count, Eight people times 170, it's whatever, mm-hmm. 1,500 people or mm-hmm. less than 2,000 people have come through the Cancer Help Program. 
I know that in those 1,500 or 2,000 lives that we've made a difference mm -hmm. for not every single one, but mm -hmm. you know, almost all of them, we've made a real difference. And we've made a difference in their families. And then that's spread out to people who've heard about the work or who, so the community of those that it's touched is, um, is quite a few. Uh, so I don't know whether in the long run our work in environmental health is going to reduce the number of toxic chemicals that are used in this world. Mm -hmm. I hope it does. Mm -hmm. But the thing I love about the Cancer Health Program is that we, I know that mm -hmm. we've touched these lives. Mm -hmm. right? So one of the things about activism is that often activism is betting that you can make a system-changing difference. Mm -hmm. um, but also there's local activism where people mm -hmm. are fighting a particular local issue and mm -hmm. that's closer to the one-on-one -on -one work. When, mm -hmm. when you know that you can change something, mm -hmm. um, that has a satisfaction to it. When you're taking on the whole cosmos, or at least you know the, the fate of the earth, mm -hmm. and there are no intermediate goals, mm -hmm. um, then you have to hope that mm -hmm. you're going to really contribute to the to a vast change. Mm -hmm. you know? Like the people who are working on climate change is a perfect example. Yeah. You know? There, it's just it's such a vast issue that if you can't break it down into I'm going to work on coal-powered plants, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm going to work on something where there's a part of the system mm -hmm. that I'm hoping I can change. Any I, final I, thoughts or reflections? I feel very full now. You know, I think if I talked more I'd be sucking up the air. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that uh, this was very rich. Thank you. Thank you for being with us at the new school. Thanks, Michael.